Smartcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Dick Smith of Dick Smith Foods tows a fake iceberg to Sydney Harbor. Hold the phone. Just to clarify, Dick Smith, yeah. who apparently runs Dick Smith Foods. Correct. Created an iceberg and then towed it into Sydney Harbor. That's what happened? That's your headline. Go. I, I don't need any further elaborations. I've heard say. the whole story. That's it. My guy, Dick Smith, I love him. 50 years of music with 50-year-old white guys. big night for me because this is the first uh night where we have run this podcast where i am impaired from the very get-go um just coming from my buddy's 50th birthday oh, party we got two sloppy podcast members tonight this be is good. fantastic good. sloppy seems like a strong word i okay. am a remarkably handy uh, inebriated fellow so uh ben barton where are you you're you're in a I am in beautiful downtown Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Oh, lovely. Okay. Week number two of the Dropping Off the Kids tour. Uh, okay. Off Dolly at Haverford today. And oh. we're getting much, I'm inching closer to the empty nest. And so what, um, what type of hotel are you presently staying at? I'm in the Alexander Inn. And since this will come a week later, no one can come here and assassinate me. But that's <laughs> gonna a say. lovely meal. I went out with uh, Dahlia's uh, two roommates and her boyfriend and their parents. And uh, we just had like a full bonding session over uh, over our kids. It was great. Oh, that sounds lovely. Uh, Jeff Simons, you're in Berkeley. Berkeley, California. It's, okay. uh, it's pretty smoky here. And, you know, we're, oh, we're keeping a real close eye on this fire that is now about three miles outside of Lake Tahoe. Oh, so. You got to be kidding me. Well, I, I actually have a... Gonna, I don't know what's going to happen in the next 48 hours, but uh, we're our, all, oh, our, so uh, all our thoughts are to the north and east. So Okay. Well, I'm sorry. I actually have a California question for you coming up. Um, I am in Asheville. I have done um, less work, less prep work for this podcast than any other podcast we've ever done. But on the, the plus side is you got yourself a little lit. So that yeah, yeah, for sure. And, and I mean, 
Timmy, drinking, that's preparation. I was going to say. <laughs> Rock and roll, right? So here is our opening for tonight. I was just at a party talking with a woman who grew up in Rock Mart, Georgia. And you all, well, I guess Jeff knows it because I sent him the song that he's going to play for us in two seconds. Ben Barton, using just your noggin and your knowledge of rock history, what song takes place in Rock Mart, Georgia? And should I give you a hint? Yeah, it is a hint. It is a quarry town. Uh, it was uh, it, it was where they quarried uh, stone shingles for houses. That's your only hint. That's an impossible question. Let me help you. I don't this. know. Is but, it? Wait. If you've seen Breaking Away, you should get it. He's seen Breaking Away. Think about this. What American rock band from the South oh. rewrote Spirit in the Night? That's the song he's looking for. What? That is a better, warmer, closer. But I have no idea. Is it R.E.M.? I mean, I know R.E.M. It is R.E.M. What song? Oh, don't go back to Rockville? No. Ready? Night swimming. Yes, I love this song. Night swimming deserves a quiet night. It's a great first line. So oh, dude, we have a we have a filled in quarry in Knoxville, Tennessee with water where I've gone night swimming, and I can strongly recommend it. Beautiful. It's so gorgeous. Yeah. Um, I mean, maybe we shouldn't bring this up on the podcast, but uh, raise your hand if you've ever gone skinny dipping. Oh, oh dude, totally. swimming with clothes like a huge complete. You have to be naked. That's nice swimming. That's it. Period. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Just thank you. For, yeah, I got to clarify. Uh, uh, Jeff at Breadloaf, did you go night swimming? I don't remember. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, we went to the lake once. The it was that pond. summer. That summer where you guys had the house when I had already graduated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was fun. Ah. Oh. Well, ladies and gentlemen, welcome, clearly, to 50 Years of Music with 50-Year-Old White Guys. We are excited that you are listening to us uh, on this uh, lovely Saturday night. We are part of the Music City Drive-In Network, and we're about to hit you with the Grammy-winning album of 1978. I don't know what you were doing in 1978, but here's what we were listening to. It's the Grammy winner. It's the number one album. Saturday Night Fever by various artists. We talked this one out pretty thoroughly last week, if I remember correctly. We really did. It's really funny, though, is about, you know, people really complained a lot about disco and they really hated it. 
it's all 100% the original instruments. Like they actually play their instruments. I know, they can all play pretty well. In comparison to dance music that comes just five years later, it's so much less obnoxious. Like, well, the the problem is- And in particular, the guitar parts are just fantastic. Like they sound great. The Staying Alive guitar part is really like one of my all-time favorites. Like I just love that. Yeah, the problem with disco is the 96 beats per minute. They're all the same beat. But up, up, but up, up, but up, night fever, night fever, talking. Because, go ahead, explain. Um, and so people just got sick of it. It's all the exact same speed because, uh, because, um, DJs wanted to roll one song into another and nobody had figured out scratching yet. And so they would just AB the turntables and it had to be the same BPM. And they didn't have, uh, they hadn't invented, uh, Turntable sets where you could speed up or slow down the speed of the turntables to do uh, beat matching. Can you play so, uh, 20 seconds of If I Can't Have You? Not sung by the VJs, but I on Element. By them. So dramatic. Yeah, that guitar part's a little cheese whizzy. Isn't it? <laughs> yeah, that was less good. <laughs> uh, I thought it was terrific. Good. So that is our Grammy winner of 1978, and it is also the number one selling album. But Ben Barton, it is not the number one selling album of all time that was released in 1978. Do you Which think is shocking? Can, do you think you can name it? There's a there's an album that comes out that outsells it all time. It's the Steve Miller band's greatest hits. It's it not, not. It's a. It's a soundtrack. It's a seventy-eight soundtrack. Yeah. It sold more than Saturday, Saturday Night, Night Fever. Fever. Just it was me. the sum, It was the summer of soundtracks. Let's see how fast you can get it. I think it's going to take you one second. Oh, crazy! Yeah, there it is. <laughs> wow. Uh, Jeff Simons, do you have a favorite song from the Grease soundtrack? Oh, I love the Grease theme song that Frankie Vat. That's just in the movie. That's not from the musical. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I think all those songs from the musical are pretty true. I love You're the One That I Want. It's ridiculous. You could do a really kick-ass punk rock version of that song. I can tell you from personal experience. experience. But <laughs> I love the Grease. I think that song is hysterical. That yesterday. His vocal on that. <laughs> Is so hysterically <laughs> funny, and I just lo- and it reminds me of being eight years old in the back of my yeah. grandfather's uh, Toronado. It was like a car that was like four cars, modern yeah. cars in one, yeah. just like driving past Los Angeles skyline, hearing we, that song over and over. And, and that's over and that's over. a BG song too, right? Didn't they write that? Did they write the theme for Greece? Maybe I'll check. I don't know. It's sure, we if, in- if not, they certainly ripped off the BGs. So. We were in a Buick LeSabre in nice. 1978, Jeff Simons, which is akin to your car. Yeah, the home car was a Pontiac Le Mans, which is like, <laughs> they don't even, I mean, that was a so boat. great. Yeah. Give us a little uh, Frankie Valley if you can. Oh, of him singing that? Yeah, yeah. I'll just keep it going then, yeah. The strings are so ridiculous. If, 
if Billy Joel that... sang if Billy Joel sang Tom Petty's Refugee, that would be the song. <laughs> that's what we got going here. That's great, great interpretation. So that's it. We got the Grammy winner out of the way. We got the number one hit out of the way. We got the number one all time hit out of the way. Um, that's a quick it, podcast. Nice job, fellas. Good job. Love you guys. <laughs> But actually, so our listeners are going to be um, already on to the next thing. Whereas it's written by Barry Gibb. Barry Gibb wrote it. It is written by Barry Gibb. Nice. Well done. The three of us at this point are still uh, reeling from the death of Charlie Watts. Uh, and, and I know this is coming out later for our listeners, but Jeff, you opened up your rock and roll class with a little charlie watts lesson i did well i I teach a rock and roll history and performance class and watts passed away the day before school started or the day before classes met so Mm -hmm. we just uh and then we have uh i have a new colleague this year who's fantastic who's joined me in the music department who's going to be teaching uh jazz and intro music and digital music and he is a remarkable professional drummer his name's jameo brown you can look him up on youtube you'd be like why is that guy working with a schlub like jeff but uh i don't know how we convinced him to take the gig but he and i spent some time talking about charlie and his drumming style um with the kids and we had a really great time we listened to a couple tracks we talked about the the classic charlie watts hiccup in the four four that i think invents the rock and roll shuffle i mean watts has this little hitch in his get along because he hits the hi-hat three times and he lifts his hand away to hit the snare drum. And that little, uh, there's a little bit, he's a little behind the beat on every single Rolling Stones track. And it's the magic of that band. That's why nobody sounds like them. They're impossible to cover. Is there a song for a schlub like me that would illustrate that point you're talking about? You can hear it on almost every song. But um, maybe Ben can help here. Like the quintessential Charlie Watts hiccup, like start me up. You can hear it on every one. Start me up is exactly the one I was going to say. Oh, okay. Well, let's just cue that up. You can hear it. So what you're listening for, everyone, is most the hi-hat is are the the symbols next to a drummer's uh, left hand that that can be pinched together and they make that. Yeah. As opposed to the symbols, which are the big crash noise. Most guys hit on top of the beat and then they hit the snare on the two and the four. So if you're counting one, two, three, four, it's one, two, three, four. And the snare is the two and the four. The kick drum is the one and the three. And the hand is usually one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. What Watts does is he plays cross stick and he goes one, two, three on the hat, then lifts his hand away and hits the snare drum. So instead of one, two, three hit, you get one whap, whap. And you can hear it on start me up. There's this whole Okay. And the sound every t- and every time because he's making this extra move, the snare drum's a little late every time. And the band and basically works because it. you're used to sorry, go ahead. Basically, because you're used to hearing it, but it's like a metronome. Like right. almost every song you can hear the hi-hat, and the hi-hat keeps the beat for you in eighth notes. Exactly. Along with it. And that's the actual beat. All the other stuff is flavoring along with it. Huh. You're a Stone song and it stops. Like you, it's completely subliminal. You're not used to it, but all, all of a sudden you're like, huh, huh, huh. Every time the snare drum comes because the, the metric stops, it really like snaps into your brain. Huh. Yep. And you can hear it really well from the right at the top. So here we go.
and it just it it has this little rolling. It's not perfect. If you put Charlie Watts's performances on a grid, like if you put it into Pro Tools, it's a mess. You'd have to beat Doctor and move his snare probably every measure. But that's why the Stones sound like the Stones. They sound they they have that rough and tumble like the, none yeah. of these songs are recorded to a click track because there's just no point because Watts is just not he's disinterested and locking it's usually called a groove right like drummers have great groove and great time and they're metronomic and they're perfect and all that 70s rock like the guys who played with zappa and steely dan and all those session guys yeah you can give them like play 100 bpm and they just lock in at 100 bpm they're amazing they're incredible and then the complete opposite of what charlie watts brought to the table well but the other thing is he's also the opposite of what the who and the Zeppelin were doing right he's not flashy at all he's Un, he's like beyond unflashy. Yeah, yeah. Like he tightens it down to the just the bone marrow of what the experience is. And actually, I was thinking about it. Like part of the reason of the success of that band is his just like utter modesty. You know what I mean? Like he's such a laid back person inside that sound. He he lays down the the backbone of the whole sound and yet he's not flashy at all he is and he's actually like disinterested in being a big part of the sound it's yep. he's actually kind of disinterested in being in the band yeah like for I mean, sure he's Dude, got and some- that's that's actually like this is part of the deal with a successful team is yeah, just yep. a complete and utter professional team player where he really like he, he's like i don't even really care for this music that much you know, yeah, like, really? I prefer jazz. I'm just kind of really, yeah. Like these guys are all professionals. I'm a professional. Like that professionalism is like an amazing, beautiful thing that he brought to this act. And then he never got caught up in the in the craziness of it. You know, like he no, sh- for sure showed up, recorded it, didn't really care for it, and left. And then no. the other guys spent you know a month working on all the parts, and he was at home buying suits. You know, it's a bet. Ben, you've talked about the Rolling Stones before and, and the original guy and then and then Mick and Keith come along and yeah. what was the original guy's name? Who Brian Jones. Tragically. Yeah. I mean, is Charlie Watts there from the very beginning? And how did he navigate He's basically those relationships? like six months in? They, they, yeah. they, they, they had a hard time finding exactly the right guy. And then they uh-huh. found and then he just he just stuck with it but i mean from the very beginning he was he wasn't a rock star wasn't interested in being a rock star didn't take any drugs like he was super extra mega professional about it um all the way through it amazing like it's like it's a a, a secret to their success for sure well also because like he never fell apart on stage he was never exhausted at the end of a tour like i mean the stones went on stage like unprepared to be good and watts just with no facial expression whatsoever, just kept it together, looking around him with just like disdain at his idiot <laughs> friends. But if the drummer wasn't able to do that every night, that band wouldn't have made it. They wouldn't have been able to become, especially wouldn't have been able to come the behemoth touring machine that d- defines the second half of that band's life. Wow. Oh, and also like I actually, for, for a totally different reason, I was reading the the story about our experience with Jimi Hendrix. And then the next next album is uh, Axis. And between the first album and the second album, the rhythm section got really uppity. And they were like, yeah. got to listen to more of our ideas. And I was like, no, no you, <laughs> you guys need to go home and cash those checks and shut your mouths. And they, they actually put songs by those guys on Axis and they're horrible. 
Right. Like there's that, two there's two songs that Hendrix didn't write on Axis, and they are skippable, man. They yeah. Suck. Oh. But hey, Charlie Watts was the opposite. He yep. just he was like, sure, y'all y'all do your thing. Like it'll be fine. I'm a, I'm a professional drummer. I show up and I play this. That will be great. Well, I love uh, Jeff how you describe what he's doing on that song. There's a song I've heard my entire life, and um, yeah. I, I didn't know what I was hearing until you pointed out what I was hearing. I was like, oh, that's the charm of the song. Like, but and it's also just the weight. That, I mean, if you sit behind a drum kit or even if you just if you just like drum along on your lap, your weight's going forward when you hit. Right. Like, boom, bap, boom. And rock music is leaning forward. Right. It's hitting straight through. Boom. What half of Watts's body weight is pulling away from the kit when he hits a snare drum. And there's a lightness of being to that that mo- that you don't get in other other recordings because right. it's that bump. And he's hitting through with the snare drum, but he's pulling back half his body weight. And so there's a there's a lightness to Watts's playing that other drummers can't imitate because they're too busy trying to be Bonham, right? Bonham's playing through the center heavy, of the earth, heavy. right? I mean, yeah. he's just trying yeah. trying to punch his way through the snare drum, and Watts is almost apologetically hitting and that that's a really important piece of the stones contrast oh for sure and dude just start me up like that guitar part is really 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 hard to dance to like it's a very single part where it doesn't come naturally to it and actually to lay down a very basic drum track that carries that guitar part and believe me start me up is not the only stone song (laughs) oh yeah (laughs) It's a very generous performance by Watts um, because, you know, like if you had Bonham or somebody else who was trying to show off too many fills, like trying to fill in all that stuff would definitely not suit the guitar part. He takes oh. the space and the room for Mick and Keith to be the uber stars on each track, like yep. to do their thing. They get to really show off and he and Wyman just groove it underneath them. It's amazing. So, um, yeah, I heard a story of, of, uh, the fact that Charlie Watts got into a little fight with Mick where Mick is like, you know, you're my drummer. And Charlie Watts said, no, no, you're my singer. True or not? That's probably apocryphal, but my favorite part is that it supposedly takes place at three in the morning. Like, you know, Mick's like mad about something on stage. Like go wake up my drummer. I want to talk to him. And the Watts wakes up, showers shaves puts on a ten thousand dollar suit walks over to mick's room punches him in the face and then goes back and goes to bed i hope that's true (laughs) uh all right um any other part you want to play for charlie watts before we move on you what's your favorite you have a favorite drum track by by charlie oh me yeah we i thought we're gonna do miss you that's my favorite yeah me too let's do it that's my all-time favorite. Which is like, you know, getting back to disco, right? Like this is the oh, dude, this, this is the stone's right, disco this is what's song. so amazing about it. And just just like the the when you actually listen to the instrumentation that's not the drums and the bass, it's just a rock song. It's just a straight ahead rock song. That's the secret to why the stones were able to do a decent translation of disco, is because they just had Charlie and Wyman change what they did and everybody else did the same shit. That's yeah, fascinating. Okay. Ready? Just pause. Mm-hmm. 
the song I I texted you about. Good God. You know, there's an extra, there's a nine minute version of this that was the 12 inch remix. And really? it's great. It's equally great <laughs> as the five minute version. This song, they sometimes play this song for like 15 or 16 minutes in concert in this era. Wow. And uh, it doesn't bother me at all. Like, I just. No, this listen. song is fantastic. Inexhaustibly fabulous, this song. So, Flannery, now I'm driving Flannery, uh, my eighth grade daughter to middle school the other day and she and i are battling over radio stations as we go and and we get to the classic rock station and this song comes on i'm like you just got to listen to this song this is a great song and she says what is that sound what's making that sound at the beginning of the song ben that's a harmonica at early on yeah she's yeah. like what is that what is it? Yeah, no, totally. They've got it like, and that's a, like, uh, disco is a much, 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 much tighter and more contained sound than okay. what the other instruments are doing, right? The guitar part is just pretty much a straight ahead Keith guitar part. He adjusts a little tiny bit. Then they add a piano and an electric keyboard and they add this harmonica player playing on top of it. Again, that's not a disco instrument. No, and he's playing <laughs> to what's called, he's playing what's called a bullet mic, which is the mic that the old fashioned mic where it has the lines yeah, yeah. across the front. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you can distort the hell out of that, and it's great for harmonicas because it, it sounds like it's going through a, uh, like a fuzzy amplifier. But that's, well, how they get, that's how you get that sound. Well, I think the Rolling Stones captivated this particular Olivia Rodrigo fan uh, at least just for a moment. And Flannery also liked it. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, oh, all right. Let's get into 1978 uh, in this, what can only be described as an ill-prepared podcast. Uh, gentlemen, the People's Republic of China in 1978 lifted a ban on works by, go ahead. Holden Caulfield. That's correct. No. Western artists? More specific? Oh, I don't know. Shakespeare. Okay. I hear Charles. good things. <laughs> I hear he's com coming up with some good storylines. 370 years to break in China. Good work. Um, they also lifted the ban on Charles Dickens and Aristotle. Why would they care? Why would they be anti Charles Dickens? Like anti capitalist man of the people. Yeah. Like Dickens is like ground zero for a popular revolution. That's a weird thing to be mad about. Huh. All right. Uh, Jeff Simons. I love, huh. It's enough out of you. <laughs> enough out of you, Poindexter. <laughs> Go have a drink. You know, Jeff, uh, don't bother the marketing department. He's working. I'm sorry. I, I apologize. Jeff, do you know Yuba City, California? I do know Yuba City, California. Absolutely. In 1978, five men with mild mental health issues disappear in the snow on their way home from a basketball game. And in June, four of the bodies are discovered in the Sierra. The fifth is never found. Have you heard about this story? Yeah. I don't know very much about it, but yeah. I thought they became the village people, but I'm wrong about that. 
that was in a, a different group of five, five Bay Area guys around this time. Oh, my <laughs> God. Are you coming from a party for a 50 year old? All right, let's keep going. Um, Yuba I, City it, is is near me. It's just a couple just like about 80 miles north of here. So, All right. We have a new segment on the podcast. And the new oh. segment is. Conjecture the story behind this headline and whoever comes up with the best conjecture for the headline is going to win the contest. I'm just going to look up conjecture really quickly. This is good. I finally have a chance at one of these contests, Timmy. All right. So explain this headline from an event, according to Wikipedia, from 1978. Uh, Whoever wants to go first can go first. Ben should go first. Dick Smith of Dick Smith Foods tows a fake iceberg to Sydney Harbor. Hold the phone. Just to clarify, Dick Smith, yeah. who apparently runs Dick Smith Foods, correct, created an iceberg and then towed it into Sydney Harbor. That's what happened? That's your headline. Go. I, I don't need any further elaboration. I I've heard say. the whole story. That's it. My guy, Dick Smith, I love him. I don't know how yeah. that's going to top the fucking headline. The headline is... <laughs> Dick Smith Foods toes fake iceberg into Sydney Harbor. We're done. <laughs> Frankly, you you had me at Dick Smith of Dick Smith Foods. Helpful clarification. I mean, there really actually are a lot of Dick Smiths. It's right. true. Glad that it was the one who has Dick Smith. So Foods. I will say that there are four hyperlinks on Wikipedia, and I clicked on none of them. I was like, okay, I got, I got it. By the way, Dick Smith of Dick Smith Food has been working Wikipedia really nicely. Yeah, I, it is. I would imagine it's the actually the children of Dick Smith of Dick Smith Foods. <laughs> no, that's what he did in his retirement, man. That's what keeping, he's keeping his, his iceberg money. Alive. All this iceberg money he's spending on the Wikipedia page. Wow. So neither of you are interested in why the the why behind this story. <laughs> what do you mean why? If you were Dick Smith of Dick Smith's food, wouldn't you make an iceberg and bring it to Sydney Harbor? It's obvious. Uh, was it some kind of like Titanic anniversary? It does say toes a fake iceberg. Like he could have gone out, given that he's in Australia, and gotten a, a real iceberg. But and that's no. easy to do now. You just have to go <laughs> over to Antarctica and start pulling. Apparently, the whole thing will come with you. <laughs> All right. Um, are you going to tell us what happened? No, I have no idea. I have no idea. I was at a party talking about night. So this spending. is actual conjecture. <laughs> the seg- this segment is I looked some shit up four minutes before we went live. I love it. All right. Um, and finally, <laughs> that's two all rights for me. Uh, ben Barton. I don't know if Jeff Simons would have experienced this, but surely you did. The blizzard of 78. What do you remember? Oh, of course. Yeah. No, you were in Maryland. You didn't it know It was the worst winter in, Mar- in recorded Maryland history. School was canceled for like 14 days. It was amazing. You I had remember- snow way down there? We had like four feet of snow. I remember digging a tunnel. under. I was small enough to dig a tunnel that lasted like 50 feet in the front yard. And I could go into it. And then we had an ice storm. And so the snow had this layer of ice yeah. on it that you that you couldn't break yep. through. Yeah, the whole world shut down for a long Two time. Two weeks. So, yeah, yeah. 
Ben, what do you remember? I remember that uh, we couldn't open the door to our backyard. Yeah, wow. It we, just... we were like pushing, pushing, pushing. You couldn't even get it because there was so much snow against it. So yeah. we had to crack it a little bit. And then my brother and I were a little paused. which was like... <laughs> and we dug until we could actually get out. And I mean, I, you know, I guess... 78 when I'm nine, right? I mean, I like I could barely, I don't even think I could see over the snow. Like it was amazing. Right. It was amazing. We were in Andover, Massachusetts. We would crawl out of our parents' bedroom window onto the garage and jump off the garage into the snow. And it was just, yeah, I remember building tunnels and forts. I remember more about that particular blizzard than any other segment of my childhood it's amazing oh that's awesome. it really it, is it really was the one winter that that was like a calvin and Hobbes cartoon yeah you know all those yeah. winter calvin cartoons of this inexhaustible snow like that that was what 78 was like I, I will amend that i i do remember more about spunky um in 1979 when my parents decided to get a dalmatian puppy named spunky and i was in charge of spunky even though listeners i i wanted nothing to do with this puppy dalmatians any of you have experience with dalmatians they're the worst mean as hell mean inbred terrible cocks and i it was my freaking job to walk spunky before school and spunky would get loose and then i am wandering through the swamps of andover massachusetts trying to find this dog you know what's so funny (sighs) about um dalmatians like cruella Deville is supposed to be this evil presence in our childhoods and like i've met enough dalmatians that i'm like i mean Better that breed than other breeds to make a coat out of. All right. No, right? Worse. do not get the animal rights people sick on us. We're not getting canceled over our Dalmatian. I'm just saying if you have to do it and you have to pick a dog breed, they're in the conversation. Yeah, maybe she has a point is what you're saying. And on that, let's go to our three albums. Our three albums. 1978. Uh, we get, I'm not doing a debut record. I'm not doing a band that did two. Uh, but I'm thrilled to give this band some love. So music scenes just ha- seem to happen accidentally more than anything else. It's not like a city's like, well, we should really reinvent music. Let's all go to a bar and do that, right? They're a long time coming. And um, one of the big seismic shifts in music we've been talking about is this move from R&B and funk into disco. The other right. one is the reinvention of rock and roll back to this kind of back to basics, right? Away from progressive rock, away from longer, more complex, more bombastic music to something that's like okay. three chords in a cloud of dust. Punk rock, it'll be called, but it becomes a new wave. It becomes a lot of different things. At the same time, any great scene isn't just one thing. So while punk rock is happening, there's also this kind of weird arty rock version of progressive rock that's happening at the same time. And in New York City, these bands are all kind of happening in basements and in garages. There's no place to play. And they find a guy in a, in a neighborhood called the Bowery named uh, Hill Crystal, who opens up his, his dive bar, CBGB's, it's like, yeah, you guys Woo! want to play here? I don't care. 
All these bands start showing up around the same time. The Ramones, you've all heard of. Television, who I talked about before. Talking Blond- Heads. Blondie's in there. And indeed, tonight's choice, Talking Heads. Sweet! Talking Heads is a band I came late to, right? If we were doing this podcast in real... like If we did this podcast when we were 18 years old, I would be making the argument that Talking Heads was a little overrated. I was late to talking heads like I, you know, I was too young to get it on the first step through. I loved burning down the house. I loved the concert video with the big suit, but I didn't love little creatures. And I really didn't like naked or the wild wildlife soundtrack. So like by the time I started paying attention, talking heads was on the other side of the of the thing. And I was an angry young man. I wanted things to be fast. I wanted them to be loud and buzzy. And of all the CBGB's bands, Talking Heads was my least favorite. Um, but as a grown up, um, I've gone back and it was kind of amazing to rediscover this band that you thought you already knew. I love, love, love the first four Talking Heads record. Um, and tonight's choice is their second record. And in fact, of their studio records, this is my favorite. This is a, I like it even more than Remain in Light, which most people would pick as the masterpiece. I like it more than the debut. I prefer their live records. That There are two Talking Heads live records, which are just beyond belief. But this second record catches the Talking Heads as they're kind of mastering this weird art rock that they're doing right before they blow it open and add a whole bunch of members to the band and fall in love with Fela's music and become kind of a world rock band. Um, the band's uh, principal energy comes from their lead singer, David Byrne, who is a RISD student. Um, and that's where he meets the rest of the band too. They have one of the all-time great rhythm sections who uh, uh, start as a couple, become a rhythm section in a band, stay a couple, are still a couple. Like they're a wonderful uh, story. And then they have a, a super inventive uh, very clever musician and Jerry Harrison on the other side. It's a gifted little quartet. And they, they start by making these very quirky little rock and roll songs. And it's all about David Burns interest in, and, and uh, having this hiccupy staccato rhythm in the songs. Like he's a weird singer. There's little noises and he's jumping up the octave and register. And because he's kind of a performance art guy, there's a, he's kind of creating a weird persona on stage. And so these songs are, they've got great drum and bass tracks. They've got great, like, angular, scratchy electric guitar parts. They use their overdubs very sparingly. It's a really open, raw sound. And Burn is this very weird, engaging presence. And they've written a ton of great songs. But I'm going to play the cover tonight from this record. And I'm going to make the argument that there's a very small micro group of songs where a cover is better than the original. It's very rare that I prefer a cover. And and let me make it clear. I love the original of this song. Al Green is the original artist. He did this song at the height of his high records. So it's not my favorite Al Green song, but it's an ass-kicking tune. And the Talking Heads take this great old slinky, R&B song and make it something completely different. They slow it down. They straighten out the rhythm and it's almost like zombie disco. Like <laughs> this song for me is, is an incredible marriage of the kind of disco beat of the moment and the art rock sensibilities of the band and the punk rock 
like DIY recording. And it's a real tip of the hat to the music that's come before. And it all comes together in this, what I think is just a, an endlessly engaging cover of Take Me to the River, which is uh, one of the great tracks on more songs about buildings and food, which is a freaking <laughs> great title for a record. My choice for 1978 is Talking Heads, Let's second go. record. And here we go. More songs about buildings and food by the Talking Heads. to tina waymouth for that just killer baseline oh, so great and uh, another shout out to friend of the pod and an old friend of mine quinn who was way ahead of me on this loved the talking heads from the jump and was always bewildered that i couldn't get it so quinn my <laughs> apologies you were right i was wrong and i now yay i ride hard for the 77 to 84 uh years of the talking heads what do you got ben I love the Talking Heads. I'm going to have one of the live records as my album of the year. Um, and but I, I think it's awesome. A really, really good point to remember that when we were teenagers, they were bad. They were bad, and the songs were really, really, really off-putting and annoying to the point where you were like, "Well, I don't like the Talking Heads," and people were like, "No, no, yeah. you're like, no, I just don't like them." What? What? Uh, is there a particular song you're talking about? I uh, wrote the Nowhere is the one that just murdered me. But. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Jeff, you're muted, man. I think there's worse ones than even Road to Nowhere. And it's this is the one that that just did it for me. I was done after this one. Oh, you're totally right. Way worse. Wait, let's get a little bit of that growly vocal. Ah, Russell. Right, right, That's enough. Yeah, that yeah, what, two story soundtrack just is that just like 87? What year is that? 86, 86. Yeah, okay. So, like, I'm a junior in high school, and like, that's a top 10 hit. I'm like, no, thanks. No, you know? I'm out. Well, this is good. So, now, so more songs about buildings and food. What's the song on this that we've never heard, or, or guys oh, like me have great. never heard that you love? That's a, that's a generous question. All right, here we go. I will go with. Oh, I love this song. Here we go. Try this one on for size. There's that bass line. Yep. 
What's this song called? It's Warning Sign. Love it. It's in no hurry, layer after layer after layer after yeah. layer. You finally get the payoff. Yeah, it's, just, you know, yeah. It's, it's it's hypnotic and it's uh, they're already they're starting to realize that they're like interested in drones and repeated patterns. But like, yeah, there's this is not a record with a lot of hits, but artists only is a great song. Stay Hungry is a great song. I love the big country. And I mean, there's not a bad song on it, but like uh, it's, it's weird because it's it doesn't have a hit. And so it gets kind of it gets lost in the shuffle with them. But uh, it's a great record, I think. All right. Well, Ben Barnum, I'm super nervous about your pick because it's it's going to affect my pick. What do you got? <laughs> uh, so this is a good transition because there's another artist that was gigantic in the 80s whose work rubbed me the wrong way. And it took me time to come around to this. Artist. And that artist would be your Bruce Springsteen. Born in oh. the day and Dancing in the Dark were so omnipresent. And you've heard me complain about keyboards Born in the USA is a really keyboard heavy. That, I mean, like from the first oh, that song, I was like, okay. what, hey, what yeah. is happening here? No, thank you. Return to sender. No interest in this material at all. I really, really, really struggle with it. I had a really good buddy in high school who was like, start with Nebraska then move to darkness. And I was like, why would I do that? Because this guy sucks. And he was like, start with Nebraska. <laughs> darkness. And I did. I bought those two records. I listened to Nebraska. And the thing that was really super, like, especially smart about my friend was that if I started with darkness, it would have taken me more time. Uh, because darkness is, in fact, a, in my opinion, a better record than Nebraska. But Nebraska is so stripped down and so stark and angry you're like, oh, well, that was great. <laughs> like, even though it's not as good a collection of songs, just the presentation of it, you get a real, you get a much crisper, clearer vision of what it is that that Springsteen was doing. And honestly, yeah. he didn't say Born to Run. If he said Born to Run, I would have like, I heard those songs. Not, no interest in that. Uh, it was Nebraska that brought me in. And then it was Darkness that just hooked me. When I talked about Born to Run, I mentioned that as a full-on grown-up, there's a version of me that likes Born to Run better because it's a much more cheerful record than Dark. Yeah. A relentlessly yeah. negative and angry record. And yet, and yet my whole life, Darkness is by my favorite speaking record. Wow. I love Darkness. It speaks to me so powerfully. I went back and I actually had a hard time choosing what song to ask Jeff to choose. And this is why I know that it's such a great record. There's five different songs on Darkness that have been my favorite at one or another and in fact the song i'm going to choose is really jeff um i love this record the story of this record is insane similar to the story to born to run so springsteen puts out two records that are not very popular that are that have some great songs on them but are just not that popular i mean in total they probably sell 150,000 records between the two of them then he puts out he's he just suffers we hear the whole story he fired half his band he brings half the band back in he's in the studio for a year and a half he finally brings in a guy who's a rock critic for Rolling Stone named John Landau, 
who helps him finish the record. Um, and also it just sort of becomes like a, like a kind of Svengali. Yeah. And the thing that's really funny is that all of these Springsteen biographies and hagiographies are written by other music critics. So they're like, Jen Lando is the greatest guy in the <laughs> history of the universe, because that's what every single rock critic dreams of. Can you, like, right. <laughs> a person who writes for a blog or whatever else, can you imagine if you're a rock critic and you, you go see Springsteen and then he's the famous guy who wrote us on the future of rock and roll and his name is Bruce Springsteen. Um, and then you get to meet Springsteen and it's, it's like, I like you. Would you come to the studio? <laughs> come to the studio and you get to freaking work with Bruce Springsteen and then become his manager and his producer. He produces every record from Born to Run all the way through to, I think, wow. Joe's record, right, Jeff? Yeah, yeah. He's the co-producer of every single one of those records. But it's And the thing that's funny is that he's not, he's, he, I'm not trying to run the guy down. He's obviously brilliant. Uh, but he's not a musician. He's not even really a producer. He's just kind of like a Svengali guy. Like he's yeah. like working with Springsteen. Um, he, he's got a whole reading list for Springsteen. Like a lot of this material comes from reading Steinbeck and Flannery O'Connor, which will make you happy. Woo! But he's got like a whole like Americana project with Springsteen. And he's like a, a Jewish intellectual that went to Brandeis and also just like a brilliant writer. He's great. Um, but anyhow, so he and Springsteen like had this like mind meld over Born to Run which is unfortunate for Springsteen's existing management, <laughs> Mike Capel. So uh, here we go. Mike Capel is basically now pilloried as a borderline criminal, and it's kind of sort of fair. So it, it, the thing that's not fair about it is that Mike Capel is the guy who gets Springsteen and in, in its CBS records. He gets his first record contract, and he basically gets Springsteen signed. And then he does an okay job of managing with one very, very glaring problem. Jeff, for every record sold, the $1 that was split up, how much did Mike Appel get and how much did Springsteen get? Oh, I don't know, but it is not the right percentage. Is it, okay, is it, so is it 85, 15? It's really if bad. Springsteen gets 18 cents out of every dollar. What is it? Oh. Well, uh, let's see. The, the record company gets 50 cents. Oh, okay. This, does Appel get the other? Uh, Appel gets, I'm sorry, the record doesn't get 50 cents because Appel gets 40 cents to Springsteen's 18 cents. Oh, wow. <laughs> he gets more than twice as much as Springsteen does. So for oh my God. records, nobody notices because it barely sells at all. When Born to Run comes out, people start to notice that. Like they're like, oh, that, that, <laughs> that record sold 6 million albums and Mike Appel's a rich man and Bruce Springsteen is not a rich man. Living, oh actually God. renting a barn in Colts Neck, New Jersey and living in the stalls where he can rehearse the band. Yeah, like, totally. So yeah. Uh, he sits down, he's like, uh, he's like, this John Landau guy, I'm going to go back in the studio with him. And Appel's like, no, no, he's trying to kick me out as manager. You can't, don't record with him anymore. And Springsteen's like, well, like it was a really good experience. I'm going to record with him. So Appel sues Springsteen and says, you're not allowed to record. Gets a restraining what? against Springsteen. And through all the legal wrangling, three years pass before Springsteen, they come to a settlement. Springsteen pays off Appel. He goes into the studio. And the whole time he's touring, Jeff's got a bunch of these bootlegs. They're freaking fantastic. He's like trying out the new material. He's touring. But I mean, he does not, he doesn't capitalize on Word to Run. In fact, he just sits in a freaking lawsuit for three years. Oh, my it's a God. lawsuit. Goes into the studio. 
They've got 70 songs. He's got 70 songs worked out. He records rough versions of more than 50 of them. And if you get the fantastic box set, The Promise, it's got all of this. It's got all of it. That's the box set that goes along with Darkness. It's got all the original Darkness tracks. It's got the Darkness outtakes. Then it's got all, like most of these other songs, some of which are not that great, but some of which are fantastic. Like, and I would just go backwards also to recommend, I think Jeff will agree with me for sure on this. The Springsteen box set tracks, the first two CDs on tracks, you can't believe how good the material is he left off those. Yep, tracks. it's unbelievable. The, the Born to Run and later ones, you're like, I can believe he left those off. Those are not as much. But I mean, disc one, you're just like, oh my God. Just wow. Like, between disc one and disc two, Jeff, you'd agree with this, right? There's three other not good, but fantastic Springsteen records. Like, yeah. off the hook. And what's amazing is like, Darkness in the Edge of Town could have been the all time great rock and roll party record. I mean, that's why what you're talking about here, like it, he chooses to make the darkness record. He's got a, a record, I guess, would have been called like Lightness of Being, which is just all <laughs> three minute sing along hand clap pop songs. And that's the record Steve Van Zant wanted to come out. There's a great oh, moment in the documentary where uh, Springsteen plays this amazing up tempo song and Van Zant's like, that's the one. That's the number one hit. And Bruce is like, oh, that's just trash. And he's like, you think oh. it's hard to write? The good ones. Do you know how hard it is to write a great three minute song about nothing? We have 40 number one hits we're going to throw in the trash. And Van Zandt's just laughing. It's like, I cannot believe I'm in a band that has oh a 500, uh, has a 50 million record sales and we're not going to put it out because it doesn't challenge us enough. You know, for yeah. example, Seaside Bar Song, Seaside Bar Song on side one of tracks is just like an all time fantastic super party song. Amazing. Anyhow, he boils it down to a 10-song album that is pretty much relentlessly dark. Yeah. And for the young Ben Barton and still for the middle-aged Ben Barton, <laughs> hardest Springsteen songs. Adam Raised a Cane and Candy's Room are on side one, and those yeah. are borderline metal songs. Freaking love them. It's got, like, the Factory and Racing in the Street. Like, Factory in particular is this two-minute song about his dad's life getting up and going to work in a factory that just, like, haunts me. Like, mm. early in the morning, the whistle blows, like, just kills me. Like, his relationship with his dad, it's amazing. Yeah. Um, I'll do the song in a second. I want to say one more thing about this record. Springsteen has been so beautifully open about his struggles with mental illness. I can't speak for anybody else on this podcast, but if you had told me when I first discovered this record, like 1984, 1985, hey, Bruce Springsteen seriously struggles with depression. I would go, what are you talking about? Like, yeah. a star. like he, he still struggle with depression. And then I really wish that 50-year-old Ben Martin could go back to 70-year-old Ben Martin and be like, have you heard the songs? <laughs> Why don't you listen to this record? It's called Darkness. <laughs> <laughs> depressed individual just just open your ears and listen hello <laughs> and but i mean no one like i didn't i couldn't hear that i was like wow that's weird he like he, he talks about these guys who are really struggling but he's awesome yeah <laughs> he's bruce it's, it's so like first of all i'm really 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 glad one of the things that landau did was he got him into psychotherapy um and it like apparently was just a life-changing experience for springsteen he really came to grips with his dad and with his family Wow. Um, I'm so grateful for that. 
And then I'm especially grateful for a guy in his position to be super open about it, to just be like, I'm a, I'm a manic depressive. I've struggled with depression like, basically my whole life. Yeah. So amazing and beautiful and super generous of him. Um, Jeff. Oh, and the other thing to say is that I actually, like similar to the other Springsteen ones, I prefer the live versions of all these songs. The only, basically my favorite song on the multi-disc live Springsteen record is the live version of Racing in the Street. It's the only really, really, really great version of a song on that one. Jeff, do you have it? Oh, of live, from Live 75? You got yeah, it. The one from the box set. Yeah, I got that. Hold on. That's my question. Racing in the Street is beautiful. It's an actual joke, not joke exactly, but between George and I, where when we're discussing somebody who's, who's uh, our age, who has kind of given up, Yeah. George will go, some guys come home from work and wash up, and then I'm like, and they go racing in the street. You know what I mean? <laughs> I'm not quitting on this. Yeah. <laughs> my hands and I'm out racing in the streets. Darkness on the Edge of Town by Bruce Springsteen. Got a 69 Chevy with a 396 Newly heads and her stone floor She's waiting the night down in the parking lot Outside the seven store Me and my partner Sonny Built her straight out of scratch And he rides with me from town to town we only run for the money, got no strings attached. We should have up and then we should have down. Well, tonight, tonight, the strip's just right. I want to blow them off my first teeth. The summer's here and the time is right. We're going racing. Wow. I love that one. That's now my current favorite song on the record. Uh, but generally speaking, the record just expresses this like deep dissatisfaction, depression, and whoa. Um, I feel so weak. I just want to explode. Like I just yeah. love one, one of my all time favorites and definitely my favorite Springsteen record. So I don't know if you remember this. But one of my favorite Ben Barton stories is Springsteen coming into your mom's gallery on Nantucket. And uh, he's just looking around and uh, your mom's trying not to bother him, trying not to bother him, but she can't help it. Cause you, you're such a huge fan. And uh, she goes up and says, Hey, um, my son's a huge fan and uh, darkness is his favorite record. And Springsteen's like, yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> and he walks out. <laughs> I just uh, love that. I love that uh, response. Um, I, I love this record too. I love all the live albums better. These are like band, like, uh, uh, I got Nebraska from the Columbia record and tape club by accident. And that was okay. my Springsteen introduction too. And I love the song Atlantic city. I just played it to death, played it. So to death. great. Then born in the USA. I remember being in record stores and like, it's coming. The new Bruce record is coming. They had the poster up a month and a half. And when I put it on, I was like, where is the rock and roll band that I'm supposed to fall in love with. And then that massive live box set 
came out the next Christmas, five albums. And uh, it starts with a solo piano, Thunder Road. And then Adam Raised a Cane was it. Like I heard Adam Raised a Cane, track two of the live set from this little tiny club in LA called The Roxy. And I was like, oh, oh, this is why anybody gives a shit about this guy. Wait, can you and, give us that? Uh, yeah, I got it right here, I think. Oh, and they fly. Oh, it's just unbelievable. This is just such a- And, the, and the, the prove it all night too. Oh, good Lord. But this Adam Raised a Cane, because it was the first- time i heard the e street band in full flight and okay his vocal on this version of adam raised the cane is just it's just and beyond this is belief. another one about his dad too yep Like Springsteen's such an underrated lead guitar player. Oh. Like he's a, I love his lead guitar playing. He's like all bendy and weird, and I, he's a great guitar player. And yeah. uh, if you've never seen Springsteen live, you think somebody else is doing all those live parts, and uh, they're almost all him. I mean, not as much yeah. anymore. Now he's more like a like a band leader. But seventy eight to ninety two, he takes like ninety percent of the lead guitar parts, and he, they're they're just awesome. You know, and one of the great uh, album covers of all time. Oh, yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah, it's a great cover photo. Dude, like, <laughs> I, I once had a Kodak camera. Yeah. Um, yeah. Really <laughs> good stuff. Hey, you got to play uh, 15 seconds of Candy's Room for my uh, old college roommate, Eric Krause, who uh, swore by this particular song. Oh, man. I'll play the live version again because it's just so badass. Candy's just, Room. Yeah, right here it comes. <laughs> That picture's no heroes on the wall But to get to Candy's room You gotta walk The darkness of Candy's hall Strangers from a city Call my baby's number They bring her toys When I come knocking She smiles pretty She knows I wanna be Candy's boy There's a sadness Hidden in that pretty face A sadness all her own from which no man can keep candy safe We guess all this is in my way this is in my face How about that glockenspiel? <laughs> is that the best glockenspiel in rock history? It's phenomenal. And then Roy Bitten is playing that piano like he, I mean, that is a brilliant piano part. Wow. Too. We've moved on to the glockenspiel on 50 Years of Music. It's great. It's so guys. great. It's so it's great. so perfect in the background, man. Uh, Eric Krauss, you know. Better than I, Drive by the Cars. I mean, it's really, it's something I else. went to college thinking that Born in the USA was Bruce Springsteen and Eric Krauss was like, son, let, let me teach you a few things. 
Um, I'm sorry, Jeff Simons. Did you mention the cars? Oh my gosh. My pick for the best album of 1978 is the debut from what I am going to say is the greatest band ever to emerge from Boston, Massachusetts. First of all, there's a band called Boston, my friend. Oh, I know. You've covered them. How dare you? Wow. Apparently. You were dancing in the streets of Hyannis? Apparently, it was some dude in his basement who threw away money on a down payment on a house. I'm going to go with uh, Rick Ocasek, Elliot Easton, um, Benjamin. uh, Orr. Ben Orr. Ben Orr. Thank you so much. Jeff Simons, what a debut. What a, the first three songs absolutely announce. Here we are. Actually, can you f- give me the first 10 seconds of Good Times Roll? Because this is the cars saying, hey, here we are. Here's what we're all about. Go. Go. The cars by the cars. Oh, shit. No. I'm having trouble tonight with the fade out. Okay. I'm sorry. Yeah, we'll know how lazy Tim was if this is edited. All right, pause. Give me the first 10 seconds of My Best Friend's Girl. (laughs) Here they come. Hand claps. All right, pause. I know what to do. 10 seconds is just what I needed. And you've also got on this album, you're all I've got tonight. Bye bye, love. Bye. Uh, and moving in stereo. I mean, those are six quality songs, and it's the debut record of a band. Jeff Simon, certainly they've heard of punk. Are they playing oh, punk? That's uh, a good question. This is, I think this is where you start getting new wave. Okay. This isn't punk rock. It's, it's ro- straight up rock and roll, but it's got that kind of sneering sensibility and they're using synthesizers not as string pads but in, they're trying to make them sound scratchy and buzzy and weird right i mean like that keyboard sounds on the cars aren't as noxious as some of the keyboard sounds that bother ben because they're they're dialed up to be weird they're not dialed up right. to be like showy Music. like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah right like there's just like there's stuff that's that's uh it's grading all over this record. That's trying to really also be a big giant pop hit. I like that about it. Ben, what do you think? I like, I like this record and I like the cars, but here's my favorite thing about the cars. Oh, it's my best friend's girl is a really good example of it. Uh huh. Um, if you've seen a Shonda Rhimes TV show, like if you've seen scandal in the first season of scandal, they pack in, eight seasons of another show you're yeah, like yeah yeah okay episode four of season one of scandal you're like i don't know what else could possibly <laughs> these people like are we like we're gonna have aliens in season in episode six and then what will like what are we gonna do we, like there's only so many times people can have amnesia and start again right. yeah. here that's yeah. what a car song is like 
Like they just pack five songs into yep. one. When he goes to the, here she comes again. I'm like, why is that in this other song? Why did you put another number one hit inside a number one? <laughs> it's literally, it's like the hat on top of a hat on top of a hat. They just yeah. jamming amazing songs on top of other amazing songs. Oh, that's perfect. It's Super like, nest, it's like nesting dolls, pop music, yeah. you know? Like, what is the, like, um, what is the Saturday Night Live uh, commercial Taco Town? Have you guys seen that? Oh yeah, Taco Town with the pizza <laughs> like, and the dip but, and that's so great. Oh, so fun. Taco <laughs> Town. I love that one. So, it's a good pick, Tim. It's a good pick. Tell I'm, me I'm, uh, uh, real quick, and then we'll let let everybody go. Elliot Easton. What as I mean guitars. as a guitar player? What do you think? He's a really good guitar player. These guys are really great craftsmen. Like this is the first time I noticed a band being so careful about things that seem to be nothing. I remember seeing the cars live and the keyboard player, you know, would occasionally just like shake sleigh bells and then he would like hit a tambourine four times and he would play. But he was shaking his sleigh bells like his life depended on it, because if he got off at all, the whole thing about the cars falls apart. It's so precise and everything is so well chosen, like it's panned hard and left in your earphones. And so I, I think Elliot Easton is a, is a, an example of a guy who's probably not super flashy, but like the edge of you two can do the same thing exactly right over and over and over again. And if he does it, the whole thing crumbles. So yeah, I, I, I admire him. So he doesn't compare to the edge though. I mean, but he's not even in the neighborhood. In my no, 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 no. I mean, and also like, it's a little bit hard because this is a Rick Ocasek project he writes all the songs and it's my understanding jeff can correct me he writes all the parts he tells everybody what to play uh benjamin Orr writes some of the songs yeah he wrote drive and a couple of other the really big hits on the later record i think they're the radio head of the late 70s <laughs> that's awesome you just said that to make ben's like glasses right, that made up. me laugh that was good <laughs> that's so good I think I'm on to something. I'm gonna I'm gonna write an essay and put it up on the website declaring the cars are the radiohead of the seventies. You know who will probably agree with you is Radiohead. <laughs> radiohead will probably be like, Yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> All right, gentlemen, that's it. We're shutting it down. Jimmy, good job by you. Hey, nice we're closing job. out closing out the seventies next week. This is going quick. Oh, and I finally Wait. got to choose a record I liked. So that made me really happy. Good. Oh, I'm, I'm glad. I'm, and I'm happy for you. By the way, Ben, I have to tell you, first day the, of rock class, kids are going around, they're introducing themselves. Who, what is their favorite artist? No. The one, that more kid, the one that more kids mentioned they want to cover this year than anybody else. Bad Company. William Joel, particularly oh. Songs from the Stranger. I told them that I was oh going to tell God. you on the That's podcast. That's amazing. See, I sh you should have let me choose that record. We would have. Oh, my God. What is the best? I was like, if you have to pick one song you want to cover this year, and this kid thought about it, he thought about it, he looked up and he said, Vienna. And I said, <laughs> get out. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, that's because Vienna doesn't wait for you, Jeff. You know what I mean? You're 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 still a young man and a big fair enough. We understand. You know, yeah. we get Either it. Either that or I you don't have to wait slow for down, Vienna. you crazy child. Take a yeah. foot off your feet. Just relax. All right. That is it. I'll see you guys next week. Later on, fellas. Later on, friends. Bye bye. of music with 50 year old white guys here on the music city drive-in podcast network if you like this one 
Go ahead and give us a review at iTunes and check us out on Twitter and Facebook. Peace. Hey there, I'm DC. I host the Rock Podcast. Back to the arena, the interviews. It's about a 30-minute podcast where I talk one-on-one with a band who has released new music. You can find us on all the best podcast sites like Spotify, Apple, Google, iHeartRadio, and more. If you're a rock fan like me, subscribe today to Back to the Arena, the interviews. Electric acid. Are you passionate about saving the planet for future generations? Do you want to learn how to do it? If yes, then you need to tune in to the Nature Back podcast. It's a talk show covering the changing world around us. From renewable energy, sustainable agriculture, circular economy, to ESG and social innovation. Don't miss this opportunity to discover how you can join the movement and make a difference. Subscribe to the Nature Pack podcast today on your favorite platform and get ready to be amazed. Electric acid.